You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. The country has just taken part in a giant democratic exercise, perhaps the biggest in our history. The British people have voted to leave the European Union, and their will must be respected. On the 24th of June 2016, the United Kingdom made the unprecedented decision to leave the European Union. And never before have the British people been so divided. Um, I think the Leave campaign have told a load of lies and they've been scaremongering all of our, our country into believing that it's a bad thing. That people that are, it's it's getting out of hand. Uh, we need to take control um, of our borders. Yeah, we need to stop being dictated to by a load of bureaucrats in Brussels, bailing out countries like Greece. We need to focus on the UK to get Britain to leave the European Union. You all laughed at me. Well, I have to say, you're not laughing now, are you? For the next couple of weeks, Brexit was all we could talk about. And then, nothing. Thanks to the mainstream media's 24-hour news cycle, one of the defining political events of the century had been consigned to the news pile. Until now. With Prime Minister Theresa May set to trigger Article 50 before the end of March, we are fast approaching a monumental heavyweight negotiation between the largest trading bloc in the world and the fifth largest economy in the world. Proceedings that will continue to define the politics of our generation and produce economic and social consequences for generations to come. In this week's episode, we look at Brexit and the triggering of Article 50. With us to offer some insight on the situation is Dr. Steve Keane, Professor of Economics at University of Kingston, London. The whole idea of the European Union was to go for ever further integration. So Article 50 was uh, uh, like like uh, it was a fallback clause you thought would never happen because you were, you know, young and starry-eyed and you thought the marriage would last forever. So, yeah, OK, I'll sign a bit of prenup and I never expect to actually exercise it. Joining us as well is Marcus Ashworth, columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. From one point. Two trillion euros worth of, of debt finances is raised in the city of London, which is something which isn't automatically going to be available quite as easily as it might have been. Um, you know, the city of London is the, is the finance capital of Europe, and that needs to be handled uh, for everyone's benefit in a very careful way. This week on Adventures in Finance Brexit. Also, in our long short segment, we highlight the good and the not-so-good stories of the week. All right, Grant. Well, this is a tough one because I am short my own generation. I am short the millennials this week. This story in the New York Post, it's about how millennials with essentially no investing experience are now underwater on their Snapchat trades. My long, my long, yes, my long, uh, appropriately enough, is uh, Singapore, which, uh, which has just been voted the top city in Asia with the best quality of life. And finally, in a segment we call Things I Got Wrong, we speak with a market expert about an investing mistake they've made in the past and ask them to share a pearl of wisdom with the benefit of 2020 hindsight. Yeah, and this week we've got a great one for you. We feature a great friend of mine, Bill Fleckenstein, the president of Fleckenstein Capital, who's not only one of the best investors that I've come across, but also uh, one of the most self-effacing. So uh, don't miss that. 
I have come to conclude that the tactics matter more uh, in short selling than does the research. You have to do the research, but the tactics in terms of um, what is the central bank doing, what is the perception of what they're doing, how is the market responding to news, are, is the market hitting new highs, are individual companies hitting new highs, things like that, that have uh, really stood me in good stead and were one of the reasons why I shut down my short fund and gave the money back in early '09 were all a result of the hard lessons I learned in, in, in the, uh, the late 90s and early 2000s. I'm Grant Williams. I'm Aaron Chan, and this is Adventures in Finance. Today is March 16, 2017, and welcome to Episode 7 of Adventures in Finance. To my right is my producer, James. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing all right. James, I got a question for you. Yeah. How many signatures do we need to get a referendum started in the Cayman Islands? I honestly have no idea. Well, I'm asking because I would like to start a petition or some kind of referendum to bring Grant back to the Cayman Islands. You think that's possible? Well, I mean, I, I just think he likes being away from us too much. I don't know. How do you feel about that, Grant? Where, where in the world are you? I am currently in Singapore. This is um, some kind of record. I was here last week too, and there's every chance I will be here next week, although don't put your house on it. Well, I would ask you to not put your house on it, but your house is on the market. <laughs> Well, Grant, it's, it's great to have you. And wherever you're going to be next week, uh, you know, we're going to make it work, obviously. But let's move on to the long short segment this week. Grant, what is your long? My long, my long, yes, my long, uh, appropriately enough, is uh, Singapore, which, uh, which has just been voted the top city in Asia with the best quality of life. And um, Congratulations. Yeah, well, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to say I played a part in this, but uh, I think that would be disingenuous. But uh, it's coming at number 25 uh, in the world and number one in Asia, knocking Tokyo out of first place, which is, uh, which is quite extraordinary. And, and you know, Singapore was number one in terms of the quality of the infrastructure, which is you know, electricity, drinking water, phone, and that kind of stuff. Also, public transport, traffic congestion, uh, congestion and the number one thing, the availability of international flights. Now, for anyone that's been through Singapore, they know that the, the the airport Changi is the best in the world. And in fact, it's been voted the world's best airport for 24 years in a row now, which when you think uh, of how many airports have been built around the world in those last 24 years, is a truly extraordinary feat. So I'm long of Singapore uh, as the best city in Asia to live. Well, Grant, you do a lot of traveling. Can you tell us maybe what's so great about the Singapore airport? Well, look, uh, A, it's about 15 minutes from my bed, which is great. Um, but B, look, you, you never queue there. It's, it's always clean. You get straight through. I mean, I've been, I've been uh, my, my record was uh, 23 minutes from stepping out of the plane to being sat on my couch, which uh, I, I don't know any other airport in the world where you can do that. So um, anyone traveling through Changi is in for a treat. Oh, there's a butterfly garden too, James, which uh, I know is close to your heart. Well, Grant, Singapore isn't very far from where I'm going for, with my long for the week, and that is the northern Hebei province in China, where, according to an article that I read in the South China Morning Post, a rural village around 2,000 people are producing a few dozen millionaires through selling wool and yarn online, uh, thanks to an online marketplace platform called Taobao, which is owned by Alibaba. Uh, and what was once an agricultural town, villagers are now selling their farmland, children are quitting high school, in order to produce yarn. So how about that for technology, Grant? I am long Chinese yarn. Well, look, I mean, uh, it's amazing what Alibaba has done. I mean, the number of people that that um, company employs indirectly with the websites, numbers in the millions, which is extraordinary. Um, but, you know, I, I think uh, we've seen this before. Everybody's selling their farms to try and produce yarn. Um, 
you know, at some point, at some point, people need to eat. So, uh, look, good luck to them. I'm happy that we're bringing a lot more millionaires into the world, uh, particularly somewhere like China. But uh, I'm just now waiting for the Asian yarn mountain and to figure out what they do with the surplus. <laughs> Knit sweaters. Yeah, they'll have a lot of them. But you know what? This could be uh, the new filament valley in China. Oh, come on, mate. You can do better than that. <laughs> All right, well, look, that's the longs, Aaron. Uh, and I went first, so I guess it is on you to go first with your short. All right, Grant. Well, this is a tough one because I am short my own generation. I am short the millennials this week. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Now, I've got a horrible feeling that you uh, may have picked the exact same story. Let me, let me hear why you short the millennials. All right, all right. Well, I'm short millennials, but, you know, I am short Snapchat. Oh, my God. Okay. No way. I swear to God, this is ridiculous. There's a billion stories on the internet. You and I picked the same one. I know exactly where you're going. This from the New York Post, right? Yes. Oh, my God. I yes. can't. You and I have picked the same, <laughs> the same story. All right. At least this, if nothing else, this proves to be yeah. this isn't a setup. No, this is not a setup look, at all. The, uh, all right. Well, you, look, you go first. That's the least I can do. And I'll just sit here you know, and say nothing. Okay. Well, look, this story in the New York Post, it's about how millennials with essentially no investing experience are now underwater on their Snapchat trades and their Snapchat holdings after diving into an IPO that initially shot up 70% from its $17 uh, initial valuation in the first couple of trading days and has since crashed 25% from those lofty levels. Now, Grant, I'm not sure if you've, if you've heard of the zero commission mobile brokerage platform called Robinhood, but they've reported a 50% increase in trading activity on the day of the IPO. And as you might expect, the, the average age of a Snapchat investor on that platform, Robinhood, was 26, which is coincidentally the same age as the founder uh, and CEO of Snapchat. So, I mean, you've got to be kidding me with some of this stuff. There just wasn't a single quote in there about concerns of the company hemorrhaging money. You know, it was all about how we're fans of the product and, and whatnot. So, Grant. Yeah, well, you know, that, that, that's, that was the thing that struck me. I mean, I mean, first of all, to me, Robinhood will always be Errol Flynn. Um, and I've and I got to say, for anybody listening that, who wants a fantastic book recommendation, if you can find it, it's hard to find in print now, but Errol Flynn's autobiography, which is called My Wicked, Wicked Ways, is a truly sensational read. And, uh, what a life that man led. But um, but getting back to the Snapchat thing, you know, I, I, when I watched this, it really struck me that uh, these guys, they're young, they're inexperienced in the ways of investing, and they've, you know, they've latched onto a cool product that they all use, and it's that... It's that kind of simple logic. Wow, you know, this is great. I use it. Therefore, everyone uses it. Therefore, it's going to go up forever. Therefore, I need to buy it. Um, when people come into investing and they make their debut in the investing world, the things that happen to them early on can really shape their mindset for their entire careers. And I've spoken about this in, in a couple of Real Vision interviews. You know, I, I started in the business uh, right before the 1987 crash, a couple of years before that. And so having that uh, experience early in my career and, and understanding that, you know, it is possible for 22% of the market to vanish in a single day um, was was a painful thing to go through at the time. But I think it, it really made me understand the broad range of outcomes that are possible. And anybody who started their career in the last uh, in the last 10 years really doesn't have any experience of markets going down. And if they do, they have experience of uh, central banks stepping in and rescuing them. So this this buy-the-dip mentality, um, which has done really, really well for the last 10 years, at some point won't work very well. And, and just like Snapchat's demise, or, or certainly its, its early fall, is going to hurt a lot of people, uh, I think we're going to see broader market moves, which are going to surprise and shock uh, a lot of people who uh, are fairly new to the investment game. So I, I share your view, and I, I was short millennials and Snapchat too. So, well, Grant, you know your point about the present uh, or current environment 
that young investors are growing up and really hits home for me in so many ways. I guess I'm what you would call classically trained in things like modern portfolio theory and free cash flow analysis, but none of that has been useful to me in this short, you know, in the short time that I've been following markets. And it's been a time of heavy-handed central banks, as you mentioned. So I'm just much better off shelving the textbooks because they just don't apply. So to my fellow millennials, well, look, this is go ahead. Look, this, this is this was a not to sound too heavy-handed, but this was a big reason why we started Real Vision, just to kind of broaden the dialogue and, and let people understand that this doesn't have to be about theoretical e- economics. There are plenty of real-world examples, behavioral economics. There are all sorts of inputs that you can put into them and, and, and taking all your knowledge from a textbook and trying to apply it to the real world when there are so many uh, old dogs out there who've been around for a long time and have a lot of lessons to learn. You know, taking that wisdom in and, and trying to learn from people's mistakes um, is a really useful string to add to your bow. So, you know, I, I agree with you. Just just relying on textbooks is a very, very dangerous thing to do. And Walt, to my fellow millennials, best of luck to you if you're still invested in Snapchat. Yeah, exactly. I think it's uh, it's not just the pictures that could vanish in 15 seconds. <laughs> well, Grant, let's get into our documentary feature for the week, and we will be talking about Brexit. Now, most people are probably thinking, Brexit, that's old news, but that actually couldn't be further from the truth. March is an important month because we are nearing the point where the British government is actually set to trigger Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty, which sets the wheels in motion for the UK to leave the EU. But Grant, before we get into the nitty gritty, where were you on June 23rd, 2016? Uh, I was sat on the couch in the Cayman Islands watching uh, watching the spectacle unfold. And it, yeah, it was fascinating to me to see not necessarily the result, but the reaction of the guys in the studio when the penny kind of dropped that, hang on a second, this is not going how we thought it was. It, it was such a done deal going in as... Uh, as all the betting said, as all the commentators said, and uh, and to see, uh, I think it was the Sunderland um, election result come in, and you just saw the entire mood change. Uh, and I just stayed up all night, just riveted to it. It was it was uh, it was quite some political theatre, I have to say. The country has just taken part in a giant democratic exercise, perhaps the biggest in our history. There are times when it is right to ask the people themselves, and that is what we have done. The British people have voted to leave the European Union and their will must be respected. Isn't it funny? You know, when I came here 17 years ago and I said that I wanted to lead a campaign to get Britain to leave the European Union, you all laughed at me. Well, I have to say, you're not laughing now, are you? Has been perfectly clear from all the angry exchanges this morning. You, as a political project, are in denial. That was David Cameron, the former Prime Minister of the UK, addressing the public, and Nigel Farage, the former leader of the UKIP party, addressing the European Parliament following the referendum result. You know, it was fascinating to follow what was unfolding across the pond. Now, I was in New York at the time, and you could almost sense, and I, I, I lived near the UN building, so uh, we had, I think there was some kind of convention, and, and you could see the uh, the people that you know bustling around, and there was there was a palpable uh, tension in the air uh, that something important was underway. And if what you were watching, and it felt like what you were wa- what I was watching was one of the defining political moments of 2016, right behind the U.S. Pres- presidential election. But going into the Brexit vote, perhaps not so much on the North American side, but certainly for the UK media at least, the politics and rhetoric of fear was rampant on either side of the vote. It was either you know, economic Armageddon on the one hand or migrant invasion on the other hand. So there was no middle ground. 
No, and this this idea of uh, Project Fear being a viable way to uh, shape a, a vote among a general electorate in your favour uh, has really been proven to be a very dangerous tactic. I mean, uh, I think you saw the Democrats try and use it um, in the US. You saw, you certainly saw the Remain campaign use it in the UK, and uh, and it backfired horribly. And I think that 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 sense of trust in the establishment um, is waning. And so so conversely, when, when people start to come out with statements about how bad it's going to be because that trust is waning. People tend to ignore that. Uh, you know, we saw uh, one interesting point in, in the whole process was when uh, Barack Obama came to the UK um, and in a very, very high profile speech talked out loud about how the UK would be sent to the back of the queue with the US should it leave the EU. And when you watch the polls immediately after that, you saw the, the support for uh, Brexit spike dramatically. And I, and I think this idea of you know, a leader from a foreign country coming over to Britain and telling people how they should vote, uh, it's not something that goes down well with the Brits, um, and it certainly didn't go down well uh, in that case. And I think, if anything, that was a very bad decision by the uh, Remain campaign to get someone like Barack Obama to come, and, to, to come and campaign for them. But to make matters worse, Grant, Joe Cox, who's the late Labour MP, she was assassinated just a week before the referendum vote. And I remember watching cable rally immediately afterwards, and I was just sick to my stomach. I may bring this up to illustrate sort of the chaotic and turbulent climate leading up to the Brexit vote. It was. I, and look, I mean, history is replete with, with bizarre assassinations. Um, and this, this idea of a crazed loner who takes an issue to heart and does something drastic about it, I mean, you can never rule these things out, and they happen, sadly, all too frequently. Um, but I think this just shows the, the, the depth of feeling around this. I mean, it was a, a terribly tragic event that really did shake Britain to its core. This is not a country that's used to such events. Um, uh, but it did, I think it just showed that the strength of opinion on both sides of the debate. So when we fast forward nine months to today, and Prime Minister Theresa May is set to trigger Article 50 by the end of March. Now, just to clarify, Article 50 is a section in the Lisbon Treaty, that lays out the process in the event a member state chooses the exit, to exit the EU. But Grant, what prompted me to, uh, I guess, want to do this feature in the first place was, you know, when you look at the mainstream news cycle and how it's truncated stories, it, it, it plays to our short attention span. So to the point where Brexit has basically fallen off the map and is out of the news cycle. But apart from the spikes in interest around the referendum event itself and slightly around the U.S. presidential election, one would think just looking at Google Trends and Bloomberg story count data, that this, this story is a non-story. Well, it's, it's actually, this is this is very interesting. Um, and it's not so much um, the spikes in the news stories. When you look at all these charts, and this goes back to a, a conversation I had with Chris Cole of Artemis recently on Real Vision, when we were talking about volatility, it's not so much the spikes. Uh, in, in his case, it was the volatility. In this case, it's, it's you know, the, the, the searches for the word Brexit. It's how quickly they vanish. You know, volatility gets crushed immediately after any kind of event. And stories... Uh, get crushed and just vanish because the news cycle's gone. The next thing moves on. In fact, the only two stories that I've seen stay in the news for any length of time um, over the last year or so were Hillary Clinton's emails, which, you know, that was a story that uh, that just wouldn't quite ever go away. Uh, and ever since the inauguration, Donald Trump. I mean, those two stories have been the only ones that have really held public attention for any length of time. And, and Brexit, as as big a deal as it is, hasn't managed to capture the public attention. I suspect that's going to change in March as we get closer to Article 50 being triggered. But it's surprising how few people have been talking about it in the interim. Well, and, and well, if we rewind back to the immediate aftermath of the Brexit vote, something happened that 
we should already come to expect. Here's Dr. Steve Keen, Professor of Economics at Kingston University, London. First of all, the expectations of economists were dashed uh, because having not uh, seen a crisis coming in 2008 and being surprised completely by one, this time around they expected a crisis and none happened. So they're in a uh, state of having uh, not warned at all and, and the uh, the house got almost you know, blown down by the uh, by the big bad wolf in 2008. And in 2016, they warned about uh, uh, a little little Red Riding Hood story. We're going to be uh, you're going to be uh, destroyed by the by the wolf, and the wolf didn't turn up as the uh, crying wolf. And there's no wolf about, uh, so that's a rather amusing situation because I was one of the handful of economists that said, look, you know, uh, this is going to be no big deal. And uh, the reason that conventional economists expect such a disaster out of this is that their theory tells them that the only way you get more output is by more specialization, which they see as happening by having uh, more and more free trade. So anything that reverses that, they expect a catastrophe. And in fact, it didn't happen. So, you know, Steve's absolutely right. Not only did a crisis not happen, but we've seen the FTSE climb by nearly 25% since Brexit. Uh, we saw UK GDP climb above 2% for the first time in over a year. And in fact, uh, the UK was the strongest G7 economy last year. We saw PMI spike above 50. And, you know, there are specific reasons behind these economic numbers, as Steve went on to explain. There was this huge fall in the currency, and there's been people like John Mills arguing for decades now that the pound is at least 20% overvalued. Well, with the fall in the pound after the leaving the uh, voting to leave, uh, the pound's fallen by 20 25%, and uh, that's got an initial negative impact upon uh, the, the balance of trade because you've got contracts negotiated which have to be fulfilled and you've got to pay the current exchange rate for that. But in the longer term, it probably implies that it's certainly a chance to get more tourism revenue over here. That's almost immediate. And secondly, it's a possibility that, that the manufacturing, which has declined radically in the last 30 years, fallen from about 23% of GDP to about 11%, uh, that could be start to be reversed because you now have a com- potentially competitive manufacturing sector. So that's one thing that's happened. On the very day of the vote, the uh, government, which had been dedicated to trying to achieve a surplus uh, by 2020, abandoned that pledge. And there was a range of stimulus packages and uh, moves by the um, by the Bank of England to prevent any potential shock. So basically, no shock happened. And the economy has carried on and continued on and actually grew more rapidly after the Brexit vote than before. Now what we're caught on is uh, politicians who are normally used to sitting around tables negotiating free trade deals now having to work out what they do when they try to go at the exit rather than entrance. And that's uh, become rather a comic procedure on both sides of the channel. I, I, I think we can be reassured that the vote that took place in this House and in the House of Lords last night and the passing of uh, the European Union withdrawal notification bill uh, into royal assent will give a very clear message to everybody in Europe that we mean business. That was current Prime Minister Theresa May speaking with Parliament on the 14th of March 2017. Now, Grant, this political theatre might be funny, if not for the real-life consequences of you know this divorce between the UK and the EU, you know, currency depreciation. Currency depreciation is not some abstract economic concept. I mean, it, it means higher domestic prices for consumers and producers. Uh, but when you look at, it's not just the economists who are baffled and bemused by by Brexit. 
politicians also found themselves in a situation that they didn't expect. So this was supposed to be a marriage you couldn't reverse. The whole idea of the European Union was to go for ever further integration, and any sign-up was meant to mean that the uh, only thing you could do next is is sign up even more commitment to Europe rather than going the reverse direction. They had to write something in its potential exit in case something went wrong, but they never expected to actually have to use it. So Article 50 was uh, uh, like like uh, it was a fallback clause you thought would never happen because you were you know young and starry-eyed and you thought the marriage would last forever. So yeah, okay, I'll sign a bit of prenup, but I never expect to actually exercise it. Well, the prenup that's involved in getting out of Section 50 is a damn tight less detailed than the ones they sign in Hollywood. And therefore, there's this enormous range of room to uh, negotiate what might be the outcomes. This, what Steve points out there is, is actually just classic Europe. Um, you know, this idea was a one-way street, and uh, this was something that it was never really countenanced that it could go the other way. And, and you know, that, that kind of planning or lack of planning um, has, has characterized this. And I, and I think it's, it's driven the debate on both sides, and it's also forcing particularly the EU side to, to take positions that uh, perhaps are not going to prove to be in their best interests. I mean, the UK is actually in a pretty strong bargaining position. It's, it's the fifth largest economy in the world. Uh, admittedly, it's up against the largest trading block in the world, but if you break the countries down to an individual basis, um, it doesn't look too bad. The UK still has a sizable trade deficit with the EU, um, and UK exports to the EU have fallen from 64% in 2000 down to 47% in 2015. Obviously, something a weak currency is going to do a lot to reverse. And as you went through this, it didn't take long for the posturing to kick into high gear. Michel Barnier, who's the main um, negotiator for the European Union, has made it uh, known that he wishes to have a um, rather difficult discussion, perhaps over a large-sized bill, uh, as in 60 billion euros has been mentioned, um, before true negotiations can, can happen, be it on trade and a number of other different related things, either sort of the benefits as opposed to the cost, he wants the cost conversation first, the, the divorce negotiation before it's, you know, who gets looked after kid, after kids on the weekend. That's Marcus Ashworth, columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. There have been a lot of discussions about lack of skill of trade negotiators and um, perhaps, you know, need to build out a, a wider skill set within the British government to handle this. Obviously, as most of their um, uh, trade negotiations for starters were always done out of the European Union. That debate shifted now. I think it's very clear that um, actually, in fact, the European Union is more worried about the skill of uh, perhaps of the British side in being able to um, pick off and offer deals or side deals with countries such as Spain and Poland, which are uh, two which come up in the press recently, to uh, perhaps get a, um, a little bit breaking down the consensus. So when Marcus talks about breaking down the consensus, Looking back, looking back at 2016, actually, no one broke down the consensus quite like Donald Trump. And is, these days, it seems like it's impossible to talk about anything in financial markets or in economics without mentioning Trump. But he actually factors into this in a way that uh, you wouldn't expect. And it began when Prime Minister May became the first world leader to visit Trump at the White House. And I think Theresa May took an opportunity which was handed to her to be the first person to show support and um give him a PR win and give herself a PR win at the same time. I think it went, um, it was as much a message to Europe for, for both, on both their behalves as it was a message to their own uh, domestic um, populaces. And I think it's been a very clear thing that there is potential for the UK to benefit outside the European Union. And here's one example. And likewise, uh, on NATO, 
that Donald Trump can show that he's got someone who will listen to him and, and uh, pay attention and, and the rest of you have better listen about that. And, you know, simply put, if, if, the, if the British do not pay um, their stipend each year into the, into the budget, just as uh, President Trump is making lots of noises about um, uh, NATO and the contributions to NATO, um, those two things, you know, hit the EU budget both at the same time. Uh, and that's a double whammy, which they need to be in a careful on how they handle a very hard exit from Britain where they, they refuse to pay anything straight away. Yeah, you know, Marcus is such a, a keen observer of this stuff. Uh, and he's absolutely right. You know, this, this, this idea that you can force somebody to pay you uh, a bill is not necessarily how this is going to play out. And I think the signaling that's going on here is very important to understand. Uh, you know, when we look at the numbers here, this is symptomatic of a wider problem. That is governments looking to try and cut expenditures wherever they can. And if you have a 60 billion euro bill that you can potentially walk away from, you have to think very seriously about how you do that. And for Donald Trump, who's desperately trying to build up his uh, his military without cutting in places like Social Security, um, to, to take a look at uh, that NATO bill and say, is there any way we can uh, we can reduce that? It's a very sensible place for him to do that. You know, the US last year spent 3.6% of its GDP uh, and about 3.5% the year before on NATO, which is... Uh, between 640 and 650 billion dollars uh, each year and let's face it the eu can ill afford the us scaling back on its nato contributions you know the, the the uk and eu economies are still deeply interwoven across not just uh, the financial side but perhaps more importantly across the human uh, and the physical capital aspect of this and marcus made a great point about this there's so much interrelation uh, of a movement of peoples across the European Union uh, as is that um, really shouldn't stop and will, will, will really detract from everyone's livelihood. The example was made today by the, the Spanish Prime Minister about how many um, British tourists there are that come to Spain and, and vice versa, how many of uh, the movement of, of workers back and forth and, and residents um, that the, the British have in, in Spain as well. That's something which just doesn't benefit either side if that was to all of a sudden stop. Uh, the automotive industry has been a very clear point um, whereby you know everyone's realizing that it's not just about making of the cars or assembling the cars it, 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 it's the auto part industry and how that all interconnects and clearly you know Britain is a very large consumer of, of, of particularly German automobiles um, but you know there's other selling point is that some 1.2 trillion euros worth of, of debt finances is raised in the city of London which is something which isn't automatically going to be available quite as easily as it might have been. Um, you know, the city of London is the, is the finance capital of Europe, and that needs to be handled uh, for everyone's benefit in a very careful way. It, it, it's beholden upon UK politicians to um, to construct some form of deal where, whereby that the, the city is allowed as much flexibility as possible, but in a sensible way that allows the Europeans to take some more control, perhaps, um, than it currently has of certain critical markets, which is only sensible. I mean, I think that's in some senses, London really has got slightly over its skis as far as total control and, and liquidity terms of, of some parts of the European Union's mechanisms and financing. So that may not be actually a wholly unhealthy thing in the long run for everyone. You know, when I think about this decoupling between the UK and the EU, I mean, you have to be so careful that you're not just yanking out wires without knowing where you're going to put them afterwards. I think Sure, you can have Brexit, you can you can have your referenda, and you can do what you do, but 
understand that there are specific consequences that come with these actions. Uh, but looking at it from both sides, Grant, perhaps it could be a win-win when it comes to the financial uh, situation or the financial markets. You know, the EU gets more control over its financial infrastructure and the UK has more independence. So it could be a win-win. Well, look, it could be. I mean, my my cynical nature tells me to think that perhaps it could be a lose-lose simply because both sides need to need to make a point. You know, the, the, the Theresa May needs to get a result um, to, to pacify... Uh, the country which is deeply divided about about Brexit, and you know the, the Jean Claude Junkers of the world and the Schultzes of the world and the Tusks of the world uh, face a very tricky situation in Europe, and and they have to, they absolutely have to make an example of the UK because if the UK get out of this with a good deal, with uh, you know the waning support for the European project on the continent there. Uh, it could cause problems for them. So both sides are in a really tricky situation. It's very hard for me to see how this turns into a win-win. Both sides could, for sure, come out with positives on it, but I I worry that the human input um, causes a deal to get made which which doesn't really suit either side. And if we think forward, Grant, just thinking about the political or economic blind spots, you know, we start off with the question of what happens or... Perhaps people are asking the question, what happens when Article 50 is triggered? Perhaps that is not the right question to ask. Perhaps the question is, you know, what is happening in and around the triggering that could affect the balance of bargaining power between the UK and the EU? Yeah, you know, this week we've seen the Dutch elections. And though, even though as we record this, uh, the Dutch are actually going to the polls right now, so we don't know the outcome. You know, Steve Keen had uh, some interesting points to, to make ahead of this, just to set the scene for, for people to understand how important this was. The next one being, of course, being the Dutch elections in March. If you get the the right wing party taking over there, then they're going to possibly unilaterally end free movement. And if if that happens, then all the talk about having to negotiate this with England goes out the window. It'll already be de facto that it no longer exists. So I think, uh, and equally the biggest one, of course, is Le Pen. Uh, we really have no idea which way the French election is going to go. Everybody says it'll be, you know, Le Pen wins the first round and will lose the second to whoever gets through, uh, whether it's a, uh, um, a Fillon or Macron. And then the left will come out and vote whoever is not Le Pen. But the, the way that the um, sympathies are shifting in France right now and the disillusion that people justifiably have with the euro in France, you know, it includes a lot of left-wing groups who would be seen as voting to preserve it if they vote against Le Pen. It's still touch and go as to whether she'll win. Now, if she wins, that's the end of the euro. And if she doesn't, then the next the next potential break is is, uh, is Italy. So, um, <laughs> in that sense, one reason I, I was in favour of Brexit was I said, well, it's if England gets out, the, the usual analogy is there's England jumping out of a plane without a parachute. I think it's jumping out without a parachute. The plane's about to smash into a mountainside and you might actually break your fall on the snow. Well, at least there are some really nice mountains in Europe, but looking ahead on the road, there are just tons of political banana peels to slip on. And Grant, I think the point about the unilateral end of free movement of labor within the Schengen region is a really good point and, and really interesting to touch on. Yeah, look, and plus we get the added bonus of listening to an Australian pronounce French people's names, which is always <laughs> uh, the gift that keeps on giving. But yeah, he's right. I mean, this this could be... Uh, the first political event of uh, a potentially very chaotic summer that could affect markets at a fundamental level. The whole idea of allowing free movement was basically to let people make an episodic decision to move from one country to another. So they might, you know, they might find they've got a better job offer 
in, say, Greece than Italy. They might find they prefer the weather in London than they do in Madrid. I'm being ironic, obviously. Um, but that would be episodic uh, movements to, to improve the allocation of labour and capital across the entire European continent. That was the vision behind it. What's actually happened is systemic migration. Because of the failure of the euro and the immense poverty and, and starvation, literally, that it's causing in southern Europe in particular, and then even on some of the peripheral states that are aligning themselves to the European Union as a prelude to joining the euro, those uh, nationals of those countries are emigrating systemically to countries like England that are in the European Union but don't have the euro, so therefore the economies haven't collapsed. Or they're in the euro but have benefited from the trade imbalances, there I fear for mainly Germany and Austria and some of the, the northern countries. So they've done very nicely and therefore they're getting swamped. Now, as soon as, as, soon as you end the free movement, then it means that the people who are escaping economic catastrophe in countries like Spain and Greece, but also to some extent Poland and uh, and Italy and so on, uh, they won't be able to get out anymore. And when that happens, the political pressure back in those countries for change will escalate dramatically. So at the moment, the main way young Greeks are avoiding the catastrophe in Greece is by emigrating. Now, if they can no longer do that, uh, the domestic pressure in those countries will rise quite dramatically. And once you can't escape a jail, you start to campaign again, the campaign for the reform of the jail. And that could be quite dramatic for the European Union for its situation, particularly in Greece and Spain and Portugal. Well, and if you can't reform the jail, then I guess what's next is a jailbreak. And Grant, I just, I just feel like this is Groundhog Day. We're, we're back where we were a couple of years ago with Europe. Yeah, we are. Uh, you know, Steve makes a great point there about about this the problem of people who can't escape wanting to reform the jail, and that's something that I think would uh, would upset governments from from Athens to Lisbon and on to Madrid and, and further afield. Um, we have periphery countries uh, in need of bailouts and bail-ins again, and and this risk of the more extreme political movements on both sides of the spectrum arising. Uh, in countries where you prevent this systemic migration, and also in places like Germany, who've actually opened their borders to uh, to migrants, it is a real problem. You know, it is a real problem, Aaron. It is, and uh, which is why I think this this piece that we're doing right now is is so important, is because you cannot just view Brexit in isolation. It, it must be seen in the context of other events that are unfolding uh, in in the region. So the triggering of Article 50 isn't even close to being the end, but just the beginning of this European and British saga that is unfolding before us in real time. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Aaron. And, and the idea of Brexit not being an isolated event, but being part of a broader landscape is a very important one to understand because people think it's come and gone. It really was the, the firing uh, of the starting pistol on perhaps the breakup of the European Union. We won't know for sure. Um, but this triggering of Article 50, uh, to, to quote perhaps the greatest Englishman, Winston Churchill, this is not the end. You know, it's not even the beginning of the end, but it is, as he said, perhaps the end of the beginning. And we shall see. All right. Finally, it's time for our Things I Got Wrong segment, which is uh, which is something I just love to do. And we, every week we feature a leading market expert sharing a story of a time that they got something wrong and hopefully the uh, the pearl of wisdom that they derived from that particular experience. And this week, a real treat for, for you guys. Uh, we've got a great friend of mine, Bill Fleckenstein, the president of Fleckenstein Capital up in Seattle. Bill is a tremendous investor, great company, and um, as you'll see, a very, very self-effacing gentleman. So without further ado, here's the interview with Bill. So great. Today, we're joined by Bill Fleckenstein of Fleckenstein Capital, 
Uh, Bill, thanks for joining us today. Uh, first question, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, i am uh, uh, been managing money since the early 80s. Uh, I ran a short-only uh, fund from about um, um, uh, 96 till I shut it down in 2008. And um, um, right now, I'm, I'm just managing some money for some uh, friends and family, though I've, I, I continue to write my daily column, which I've been writing since 96. Um, so that's, that's what I do. It sounds like you've had a really long investing career. Over that span of time, can you describe a time when you faced a significant investing challenge or even possibly a mistake you made? <laughs> well, if we were going to talk about my mistakes, we'd have to spend a couple of weeks. But um, one, of the th- one of the things that I learned the hard way, well, most everything I learned that's useful, I learned the hard way. But one of the critical things that, that actually helped me out quite a bit once I uh, put my finger on it was the the fact that the what I call the activist central bank era that sort of began with Greenspan really trumped fundamentals. And since I was running a short book, um, you know, people used to think that research was all that really mattered on the short side. And and um, since the central banks began doing what they've done. Um, um, the fact of the matter is the tactics matter more. And I'll give you an example. I started to realize in the late 90s that you couldn't be short all the time, which is how my fund was originally set up, um, because uh, the, 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 the irresponsible monetary policy that Greenspan was pursuing start, was starting to make stocks go up regardless of what happened. And when we, as we rolled into uh, late 99, there was a tremendous amount of new hardware purchased on the part of virtually everyone because they were worried about the Y2K bug. And in particular, um, uh, everyone replaced all their PCs and servers. So it was knowable that the year 2000 was liable to be kind of a really bad year for PCs. And most of the PC companies, they were really just commodity companies anyway, gateway, um, Compaq, those kinds of companies. So I was certain that those stocks were going to get destroyed in late 99. And in fact, the exact opposite happened. Because of the mania in the internet drove companies that had virtually no businesses to multi-billion dollar valuations, that dragged up everything else. Um, and thus, these commodity-oriented companies whose business was going to go off a cliff um, saw their multiples expand, you know, to 40, 50, 60 times. And I got badly hurt by that. Um, and, um, in the wake of that and other lessons related to that, I have come to conclude that the tactics matter more, uh, in short selling than does the research. You have to do the research, but the tactics in terms of, um, what is the central bank doing? What is the perception of what they're doing? How is the market responding to news? Are, is the market hitting new highs or individual companies hitting new highs and things like that? that have uh, really stood me in good stead and were were one of the reasons why I shut down my short fund and gave the money back in early 09 were all a result of the hard lessons I learned in, in the uh, the late nineties and early 2000 on this subject of, of uh, um, the amount of lunacy that can be unleashed by the central banks. And this is especially relevant for today, right? Because central banks are still at large 
And it, it almost seems, how did you deal with that disconnect between the fundamentals and then I guess you're saying the tactics or have the presence of that central bank put? Was it frustrating um, sort of deal with that for the first time? Well, it was not only frustrating, it was sort of you know financially life-threatening. It took me a while to figure out what to do. And um, you know, begin, beginning in early 2000, I changed the way that I approached short selling and, and, and with a sort of a um, let's make sure we don't get hurt first type strategy uh, and, and revolving around the variables that I just mentioned. Um, so it was, it was very, very difficult. Um, and, but by the same token, you know, the, the, the amount of, of, kind of craziness we've seen, which has been more prevalent in the last few years, on this rally that began or this bull market that began in 2009, I've been able to handle it as a skeptic and not believing in these policies and thinking, you know, the valuations of stocks and bonds are crazy. I haven't been hurt trying to fight against it because I felt like I've understood what was happening and I knew what not to do, again, because of what I learned through this horrible period I went through in uh, in uh, from late '98 until early to the very beginning of 2000, so it was a very difficult lesson to learn. Cost me a lot of dough, but it's paid monstrous dividends for me. Um, you know, certainly over the last 15, 16, 17 years. Well, yeah, sounds like tremendous, uh, tremendously valuable experience. And now that we're getting to the point where uh, last January, or sorry, January 2016, we had we saw the BOJ experiment with negative interest rates. Uh, ECB is expanding its balance sheet where, you know, given that experience that you had, how does that inform what you're seeing today and, and moving forward? Well, I mean, the, the you know, the negative interest rates, the ECBs pursued, uh, they, they just sort of followed in the Fed's footsteps. And we could argue that the ECB has been even crazier than the Fed and the BOJ tops everybody by a mile and the Swiss national bank's doing what it's doing. And the China PBOC is doing what it's doing. So they're all birds of a feather. Um, you know, they may not be as duplicitous as individuals as, say, Greenspan was or as clueless as Bernanke and Yellen. But the fact of the matter is they're pursuing the same crazy policies. And to put it in perspective, the liquidity injection that the Fed made in late 99 to protect the financial system from Y2K was only about 35 or $40 billion. Now, that was on top of... Um, keeping interest rates too low for a long time leading up to that. But the economy was pretty sound as well. And, and anyway, that modest amount of money gave us, in my opinion, the blow off that ended in March of 2000. Fast forward to today, in the last, say, eight years or so, the central banks have printed 10 or $12 trillion. Nobody has any idea how long and what the ramifications are going to be uh, uh, for, for the, that this can go on. Uh, the backside of it is going to be atrocious, but trying to get in front of this to capture the backside, you know, has been a death sentence for anyone who's tried that. So when all central banks are, are doing this and you're talking about tactics, what are, what are some of the tactics you're trying to, to pay attention to or, or how, how, what's your framework for thinking about tactics when it comes to central well, banks? Well, I, I don't want to be long the stock market because I think it's gro- you know, grossly mispriced, makes no sense. It's very dangerous in terms of the hot money that's in it and all of that. But I would have said the same thing to you two years ago or three years ago. So um, on the other hand, I don't, want to make, I don't want to try to fight it because I don't think it'll work for reasons that I 
that I've that, that I've said. I mean, stocks don't go down. I'm not down on bad news. Um, the market's hitting new highs. Individual companies are hitting new highs. The Fed's still perceived to be in charge, even though they're kind of tightening a little bit. But you know, the rest of the central banks aren't. So the, all the action, all the things that I look at to say, okay, is now a time to be short? Say say to me, no. Now that could change in two weeks. But um, so I don't want to be short. And what I have tried to do is capture the irresponsibility and the worthlessness of all these currencies via the gold market. You know, that worked pretty well, um, you know, uh, until, um, you know, 2013, um, 14 and 15. That was it, it didn't work well then. But it, and now it's beginning to work again. So my belief and my hope is that while they want to be while the central banks want to be irresponsible and pursue these policies that are that are disastrous in the end um uh i can make money sort of of um um not fighting them by being long gold or 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 or, or mining companies um that's been my tactic now i i i tend to get short again at some point but it has to be when i when some of these variables change in a way that i think will allow it, allow me to be able to make money being short Right. So from from a couple of decades of facing off against these central bankers and, and, and observing them from a distance, uh, what is what would you say is that nugget of wisdom that you can share with with the listeners about uh, about tactics or about even just handicapping central banks in markets? Well, you just can't fight them. You, you, you know, you can't fight them until people lose confidence in them. I mean, you could you, you know, you could ignore what they said in 2000. Um, from the fall of 2000, really through the uh, fall of 2002, and you could invest according to what common sense and an analysis would would suggest. You could do that in 08, um, um, you know, uh, from the short side as well. Um, but other than that, you haven't been able to. So I think again, I'm mostly talking from the perspective of of the short side, not the long side. Um, but I think the real important thing is. When the when the central banks are are you know are 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 pursuing policies they have and people still have confidence in them, then it's going to be very difficult for the market to go to decline. Once once it starts to decline and 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 confidence in the policies uh, um, is dented somewhat, it's possible to make money on the short side. So, I mean, all of this lesson and tactics I'm talking about revolve around trying to make money on the short side. Right, and I guess looking out for that inflection and confidence as, as you, you, you alluded to there. All right. So Bill, that's all the time we have for today, but can you tell, uh, you know, where can we find your, your writing, uh, or social media? Um, I have a website at fleckensteincapital.com. It's not a blog. It's a paid site, but it's the price is, I think very reasonable, 120 bucks a year. Um, and I've been writing that column for about uh, 20 years that I write it about market action, what I see, what I'm doing and I answer questions. Great. So, uh, what about, are you on Twitter, Bill? Uh, yeah, kind of, but I'm not actively on Twitter. I throw up a post now and again, but I wouldn't really want to say that there's, <laughs> Got it. that I do much. I can't, I, yeah, you know, um, I, I'm not even sure what my handle is to tell you the truth. <laughs> uh, that's all right. I, well, you, you gave us a place to go find him. And, and, uh, for listeners who are interested, you you also did a rewind in uh, third quarter of last year on, on Real Vision. So I encourage uh, people to check that out if they haven't already. So, Bill, uh, thanks for joining us today. All right. Thanks for having me. So, Grant, when Bill talks about the importance of combining fundamental research and also thinking tactically about central banks, I can't help but think back to the interview you did with Kyle Bass, where he talks about how we're in the central bank-led environment and how it can cause investors to be 
I guess, quote unquote, intellectually dishonest by always handicapping the central banks in any decision you, you make. So, Grant, for you, for you, how do you combine these two aspects? Look, it's uh, <laughs> a great question. I mean, they're, they're, they're two very smart guys, and I, and I think they're both right in different ways. You know, I, I think Bill's point is important in that no matter what your thesis is or, or how carefully you go through it uh, and how deeply you understand it, right before you put any trade on now, you have to ask yourself the question, how can the central banks make this trade go wrong? What can they do to step in and, and either stop me collecting on the short side um, or is the confidence in them waning to a degree where I may not make money on the long side? So you have to place that um, that screen over every decision you make. And to Kyle's point, you know, it, it is intellectually dishonest in many ways for doing that because I think a lot of people uh, have reached that point where they say, you know, in ordinary markets, I wouldn't do this, but with the central bank put active and with these guys clearly uh, intending to step in anytime we see any dislocation, people are buying things and and putting money into markets that ordinarily they wouldn't if the central banks weren't active and they didn't feel confident that there was a safety net provided by them. So but I think they're both right. Um, and I think everybody just needs to to, to look in the mirror and understand. And, and if you are going to invest um, because of what you think central banks can do, at least be honest enough to admit that to yourself so that you're prepared to take the trade off if you see signs of the central banks wavering. But I guess on the other hand, Grant, it's also an argument that with the central banks as active as they are, creates this sort of pure macro environment uh, for macro investors. Yeah, it does. But but the danger is that it it because it's all uh, hinged upon this confidence placed in these central banks that we're talking about, it can vanish overnight. And if that confidence does go, and it is ephemeral at best, it can vanish overnight, and then suddenly uh, you have a whole series of trades on in a world that doesn't exist anymore. So people need to be very, very careful with this stuff. Well, it seems appropriate given that we spoke about Snapchat earlier and things vanishing overnight. Uh, maybe they'll produce a filter, a central bank filter, uh, in the next iteration <laughs> and the update. Now, now, then you might want to buy the stuff. <laughs> All right, well, this brings us to the end of the episode. And as always, guys, anything you've heard on this episode should not be construed or considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So be smart, do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, and trade responsibly. Next week, we're back with our long, short, and things I got wrong segments. And for the main feature, Raul and I are going to revisit a phenomenal interview that uh, a good friend of both of us, Diego Perea, partner at Quadriga Asset Managers and co-author of The Energy World is Flat, gave us uh, in Singapore uh, almost two years ago now. Now, Diego is a macro energy and precious metal specialist, and he has some absolutely fascinating ideas about the present and future states of the energy market, which really did cause both Raul and I to rethink how we thought of those markets. So I think you're really going to enjoy that. And if you enjoyed what you heard this week, please do subscribe on iTunes. And if you could leave us a review, that would be fantastic. So if you've got an interesting question about this week's show, we'd love to hear it. Send us an email or voice note at podcast at realvisiontv.com. And to keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes, follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. Or you can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn if you just search for Real Vision. And you can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. And you can follow me at Macrodidact. And that's it from us. We will see you all here next week. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads.
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.